0: Of course, that was at a time when Congress actually worked. Seen it once, don't remember when. Think it's time to watch it again. Follow, subscribe, stay up to date. Episodes dropped the last Friday. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. Welcome to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Saraski, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky you can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, stand-up comedy in the 80s was a magical time. The amount of output from the top-tier comedians and the influence they had on the industry is incomparable to any other time in the business. It was very filtered, you weren't getting 7 minutes on Carson unless you were the best of the best. And the only places that were handing out half-hour specials was HBO or Showtime. Unlike the streaming services of today, who are handing out TV specials to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You see, back then, they had standards. If you weren't on the club scene for 10 years, you were not getting any respect. You need to have that time to develop your voice. I mean, I've been doing podcasts for three years now, and I feel like I'm just getting to the place where I feel comfortable. But if you need convincing, if you need proof, I did come up with a list of stand-up comedians from the 80s and their lasting impact on the entertainment industry. First, you had the movie stars, the stand-ups that transcended to the big screen. You had Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, two of the most influential in the business, Rodney Dangerfield, speaking of respect. Then Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg. They started a little before the 80s, but they became big screen stars in the 80s. Then you had the thinkers. George Carlin, Stephen Wright, Bill Hicks. The ones that made you see subjects with a different perspective. There were the brash comedians. Andrew Dice Clay, Sam Kinison, Bobcat Goldwaith. Also, there was a lot of diversity in the 80s. Now, I know when you talk about any of the words that appear in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, a lot of people roll their eyes, thinking woke is taking over. But I would venture to say that the 80s was pretty woke without being woke. There was Joan Rivers, Arsenio Hall, Gallagher, Howie Mandel, Judy Tenuta, Louis Anderson, Paul Rodriguez, Rita Rudner, Sinbad. That's a pretty good swath of voices that got a platform. But I think where the 80s really stood out is how many stand-ups became sitcom stars. You had Paul Reiser and My Two Dads, then Mad About You. Roseanne with Roseanne. Jerry Seinfeld with The Seinfeld Chronicles, which became Seinfeld. Bill Cosby in The Cosby Show. Gary Shandling with It's Gary Shandling's Show and then The Larry Sanders Show. Grace Butler with Grace Under Fire. Ellen DeGeneres with Ellen and Tim Allen with Home Improvement, and Ray Romano with Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't think we'll ever see another time where that many stand-up comedians had their own successful TV shows. Now, with the amount of streamers that we have, a lot of stand-up comedians are getting series still, but they're being cancelled after one or two seasons. All of the shows that I just mentioned went five, six, seven, eight, nine seasons. We're never going to see that type of achievement again. Who are some of your favorite comedians who burst on the scene in the 80s? Hit me up on social using the hashtag MattForgotThat. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is Skip It, 2 stars Watch at Your Own Risk, 3 stars Standard Fair, 4 stars Worth Checking Out, and 5 stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. In this episode of the podcast, I'll be rewatching and reviewing War Games from 1983. It was directed by John Badham, who helmed music drama Saturday Night Fever, 1979's Dracula, sci-fi family flick Short Circuit, action comedy Stakeout, and crime thriller Nick of Time. The screenplay was co-written by Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks, who scribed crime drama Sneakers, TV series Eddie Dodd, and was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen for War Games, and Best Picture for Awakenings. It stars Tony Award winner Matthew Broderick as slacker David Lightman. This was his second feature film after his big-screen debut in Max Dugan Returns, He would go on to appear in Lady Hawk and On Valentine's Day before his signature role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He rounded out the 80s with Project X, Biloxi Blues, and Glory. His career took a slight downturn in the 90s, though he did star in The Freshman with Marlon Brando and lent his voice to adult Simba in The Lion King. He found more success on Broadway in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying and The Producers. His most recent performances include a cameo in Only Murders in the Building, and the father in raunchy comedy, No Hard Feelings. Brat Pack member Ali Sheedy portrays Jennifer Mack. She made her film debut in Bad Boys alongside Sean Penn. She came to prominence in the 80s with roles in War Games, Oxford Blues, The Breakfast Club, and St. Elmo's Fire. She was cast in the sci-fi family flick, Short Circuit, and its sequel, After the star-studded Betsy's wedding, Sheedy would mostly appear in TV movies and one-off episodes of series, including reuniting with Anthony Michael Hall in The Dead Zone. Her latest role was as Carol Fink, the mother of Samantha, the main character of Single Drunk Female, which I recommended in Episode 9 of the Matt Watch That podcast. This is what I remember. The score, one of the most memorable parts of the movie. It mixed typical army instrumentation with popular synth sounds of the time. It does give that sense of playing video games on Apple IIe and television Sega Genesis, whatever you preferred. This is also a rare instance where I remembered the cast. Dabney Coleman, powerhouse character actor, usually playing a bit of a tool. This one's no exception. James Tolkien, from Back to the Future, Top Gun, and a personal favorite, Masters of the Universe. There are a bunch of familiar faces here, but you'll probably have to look them up. I do remember the plot, and when I read Ender's Game a couple of years ago, there were similarities with the use of video games as a military tool, but the book was released two years after this film. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. At the NORAD Combat Operations Center, an attack drill was conducted and 22% of the missile commanders failed to turn the key and launch nuclear weapons. It was unknown to the employees that it was just a test, but it convinced Dr. John McKittrick, head of systems engineering, to label them as unreliable in a life or death situation. If this were a proper nuclear attack, it takes 23 minutes from warning to impact six minutes if it's sub-launched, and they couldn't afford having missiles lying dormant in silos. He suggests taking out human intervention and introduces government agents to the War Operations Plan Response Computer, also known as WOPR, pronounced Whopper. It spends all of its time thinking about World War III, playing an endless series of war games, using all the available information in the state of the world. Every conceivable scenario has been devised and fought as a game, time and time again, continually looking for ways to improve. In 30 days, all the silo employees can be replaced with electronic relays and control remains at the top. Meanwhile, high school video game enthusiast David Lightman attempts to hack into Protovision, a computer gaming company, to get a sneak peek at their upcoming programs, but unknowingly connects to Whopper where playing global thermonuclear war can have real-world consequences. Here's a quote without context. I loved it when you nuked to Las Vegas. Suitably biblical ending to the place, don't you think? War Games is not your prototypical 80s movie. Sure, it has some elements, but the subject matter is much more serious. It's one of the first to depict computer hacking and the repercussions of lax security. It makes the film a little unique, especially compared to others that have shown the Cold War. The dangers of technology took the conflict to new levels. I really liked the acting. It wasn't hard for Matthew Broderick to play a slacker teen, and he would do it in a couple more movies. Ali Sheedy was great as his partner in crime. Dabney Coleman is always fantastic, though it doesn't top his role in The Muppets Take Manhattan. I really liked all aspects of this film. The music is solid, it was shot really well, I was into it, nothing distracted me, and it kept my interest throughout the whole film. What more can you ask for? Now for a little trivial trivia. When the movie was released, hacking wasn't illegal, but due to its depiction and security risks presented on screen, it inspired Congress to create the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986. Of course, that was at a time when Congress actually worked. War Games was produced by Harold Schneider, also responsible for Days of Heaven, The Two Jakes, and Hoffa. It was filmed in Colorado, Washington State, and Sony Pictures Studios in Culver City, California. The cinematography was captured by William A. Fracker, who was nominated for six Academy Awards for Best Cinematography of Looking for Mr. Good Bar, Heaven Can Wait, 1941, War Games, and Murphy's Romance, and Best Effects Visual Effects for 1941. It was edited by Tom Ralph, who worked on The Last American Hero, Taxi Driver, Hardcore, Jacob's Ladder, and won an Academy Award for Best Film Editing of The Right Stuff. The score was composed by Arthur B. Rubenstein, who worked on the music for Blue Thunder, Stakeout, Nick of Time, and won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Music Composition for a Series. Of Scarecrow and Mrs. King. The soundtrack featured songs by Yvonne Elliman, The Beepers, and Crosby, Stills and Nash. The runtime is one hour and fifty-four minutes. It had a budget of twelve million and grossed one hundred and twenty-four million at the box office. It was nominated for three Oscars at the 1984 Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Best Sound, and Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. On the Ski Index, I give it four and a half out of five stars. If you've seen War Games and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along... Each episode, I'm going to post throwback clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called, Matt Forgot That, Playback. I wanted to talk about Dan Hartman because I'd heard his big hit single, I Can Dream About You, on the radio recently, and the more that I dug into his life, the more fascinated I became. He contributed so much to music that I'm not sure people are are fully aware of. But Dan Hartman was a singer-songwriter multi-instrumentalist who broke through as a solo artist in the 80s, but his career started much earlier. At the age of 13, he was recruited by his brother Dave to play keyboards in the band The Legends. They started out as a soul group, inspired by Motown, and played concerts throughout the central Pennsylvania area. They released a couple of singles between 1967 and 1970. Hartman sent a 13-song demo tape to the president of Blue Sky Records, Stephen Paul, who introduced him to Edgar Winter, and soon joined the Johnny Winter Band. A year later, Edgar Winter formed his own group with Rick Derringer on guitar, Chuck Ruff on drums, and Hartman on bass and guitar. Their debut album, They Only Come Out At Night, featured the singles Frankenstein and the Hartman penned Free Ride, which he also sang lead. It reached number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. Their follow-up album, Shock Treatment, had two singles, Easy Street and Rivers Rising, both written by Hartman. By 1976, Hartman embarked on a solo career. His debut, Who Is Dan Hartman and Why Is Everyone Saying Wonderful Things About Him, was a compilation album of his work with Johnny and Edgar Winter. His first album of original material, entitled Images, featured music contributions from Edgar Winter, Rick Derringer, Ronnie Montrose, and Clarence Clemens. His technically third album was released in 1978, called Instant Replay, also the name of the first single, which reached number one on the American Dance Chart. His next album, Relight My Fire, was released a year later, and the title track topped the dance charts for six weeks. An instrumental version of the song became the theme for Tom Snyder's The Tomorrow Show. Continued success followed with 1981's It Hurts to be Loved, but his breakthrough was three years later, with the album and single I Can Dream About You. It also appeared on the soundtrack to the film Streets of Fire. His next album went unreleased and his final album, New Green Clear Blue, was released in 1989. In addition to his solo work, Dan Hartman contributed to movie soundtracks throughout the 80s. He performed Heart of the Beat in the dance flick Breakin. He co-wrote the song Living in America with Charlie Midnight, which was performed by James Brown for the Rocky IV soundtrack. He co-wrote Why Should I Worry with Charlie Midnight as well for the Walt Disney Studios animated film Oliver and Company. This one was performed by Billy Joel. His songs were also featured in the films Crush Groove, Perfect, Scrooged, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Movie. He was diagnosed with HIV in the late 80s and chose not to seek treatment. He would pass away in 1994 of a brain tumor. So I've selected a couple of clips of his work. They were all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about California Dreams. This one is specifically for my late Generation X early millennial listeners. This should have no relevance to anyone else. It was created by Brett Dewey and Ronald B. Solomon, both were writers on Saved by the Bell, and the shows were often paired together on Saturday mornings. The series revolves around high school friends who form a band called the California Dreams, featuring Matt Garrison as lead singer and guitarist, his sister Jenny playing keyboards, Tiffany Ann Smith on bass, and John Wick's Mans the Drums. In Season 2, Jenny would leave for a music conservatory in Italy, and the band expanded to include singer Samantha Wu. In Season 3, Matt would be replaced by keyboardist Mark Winkle, cousin of the band manager, Sly Winkle. It stars Brent Gore, Heidi Noel Lenhart, William James Jones, Michael Cade, Jenny Kwan, J. Anthony Frankie, Diana Uribe, Aaron Jackson, and Kelly Packard, who would become a series regular on Baywatch. The storylines were fairly prototypical for what you would see on Saturday mornings, but everyone tuned in for the music. There were around 40 original songs throughout the series' run, written by Steve Tyrell, all in the cheesy pop category. The majority of the cast legitimately sang vocals, and convincingly faked playing instruments. The cast reunited on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon in 2010, And in 2023, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the series, members of the California Dreams have played a couple of gigs across the U.S. As a bonus, I've selected a couple of clips that will appear on the Matt Forgot That Playback playlist on YouTube, so check that out. California Dreams was on for five seasons, 78 episodes from 1992 to 1996. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and the review. And Best Effects Visual Effects for 1984? (laughs) Nope, 1941. Jenny would leave for a music conversation. Conversation. Ugh. But unknowingly connects to Whopper. We're playing global thermon- We're playing global We're playing global nuclear thermon- Oh, more. He suggests taking out human intervention and introduces government agents to the War Operations Plan Response Computer, also known as WORP. Nope. She was cast in the sci-fi family fit- sci-fi family flick- Uh...